Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, your home on the internet to talk about 80s records. Every, future. every month. We're back, bitches. Welcome to the future. <laughs> That was my imitation of speaking spell. It's trying to be topical. But we have business to get to first, Henry. The boring business of trying uh, to promote our podcast. Right, well, so do this quick. Well, well, welcome to our show. I'm Henry. And I'm Chris. And we're glad to be back to talk about records again. If you like our show or you like the records we're choosing, please rate and review us on iTunes. It means a lot. It helps us get more... Um, contact with people like you yeah and if, if you don't know already if you're not listening already you can listen to us on apple itunes is that what they call it now still apple is apple, it apple podcast, podcast yes. i guess they call it yep and spotify and stitcher and of course we'd like you to share it with your friends if you want to talk to us and give us a bunch of shit hit us up at twitter at 80s exposed that's eight zero s e x p o s e d or you can email us at 80smusicexposed at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with Chris on Twitter at TCI Duke on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Hank G, H A N K G E E, Hank G. So hit me up, hit us both up. Yeah, and we've also just started a Patreon page. You can find it at www.patreon.com slash join slash 80smusicexposed. <laughs> but if you want to sponsor us and look and see what you get, you get extra content. And there's all kinds of cool stuff you could get. And we do pick up uh, LPs records every month. We use the rags method, R-A-G-S, and we'll let you try to sort out what that means. We explain it every month. Yeah, you can go back to an earlier episode if you want to see. But yeah, we definitely use the rags method. And so right now we're looking at May of 1981. Man, I had a hard time with that. I kept thinking it was April. I kept I kept redoing April in my head. I noticed that. Like when we share we share notes on the stuff. I was like, yeah. wait, wait, are we doing April? Right. I know. I was like I, I had to retitle mine again. I had some struggle with that. May <laughs> must not have been that exciting a month in nineteen eighty one. I don't know if you found a lot of references for things that were going on back then, but we're gonna give you give you a few of them. Um SCTV debuted on NBC. I didn't know that SCTV was ever actually on NBC because I really? always watched it on USA Network. Really? Which I think by that time it was syndicated and showing reruns. This is like Hoser, right? The Hoser Canadian. Da, 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 well, those guys. Uh, here's another thing. I watched maybe 200 hours of it late at night as a kid thinking it was the coolest thing in the world and didn't really ever realize what the premise of the show was <laughs> until I read it today or yesterday in my research. So what? the whole thing was supposed to be a fake network called SCTV. Oh, really? Like a local public, maybe not public access, but a public access level television show. I didn't know that. And so what they were doing was parroting a, tele, or a television station. 
So all the different skits were different shows that were on SCTV. So they could do like Bob and Dave, or was it Bob and Dave? Um, The Great White North. uh, Yeah, those guys. I feel bad that I don't remember. Those dudes. Right. McKenzie. The McKenzie brothers? Doug and Bob McKenzie. Something like that. But there was all kinds of stuff. There was like a fake soap opera that would appear all the time. And I never put it together what was going on with that. I was just like, this is weird. It's totally weird. I just thought they were just like little vignettes. I didn't know it was supposed to be a fake TV. Well, but all the vignettes were like, yeah, like five minute skits based on one was like a a morning talk show that was so weird. I couldn't figure out what was going on. But I always, (laughs) as a kid, was like, why do they go back to that? That's so strange. (laughs) Oh, um, this is also the month that there was an attempt on Pope John Paul II. Yeah, there was an attempt on his life. He got shot. Yeah, he did get shot. But I think the best thing to come out of that was that they built the Pope Mobile after that. Do you remember the Pope Mobile? Is that where he was standing up and it was like a big glass cage? I think they still use it. Yeah, it's like a plexiglass thing. So he, he goes through the crowd now in the Pope Mobile so he doesn't get shot. The Four Seasons was the number one movie at the box office in May of 1981. Henry, do you remember that movie? No. You do not. Remind me. It was with Alan Alda and Carol Burnett. And the premise of the movie was that couples, I think there were four couples, would get together every season of the year and take a vacation together. And the movie was about the four different vacations. Really? And I believe Bill Cosby was in it with his, uh, I can't remember who played his wife. It might have been Felicia Rashad. No, I, I just, no, I had a Cosby show moment there. I don't remember <laughs> who his wife was. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. It was a movie. It was a movie. Oh, okay. But it was hilarious. I thought it was really good, but that was number one at the box office. Um, on television, though, The Dukes of Hazard. Just the good old boys. And Dallas, back-to-back on that was Friday the night. They were the That's number one and number two rated shows in America. Henry, what network were they on? Do you remember? CBS. I didn't remember that. I kept thinking it was ABC. But they C- were CBS. Yep. It, was it this way in your household? In my house, the kids were allowed to watch the Dukes. But then we were supposed to leave the room when Dallas came on. No. For some reason, I was allowed to watch Dallas. Okay. I don't know why. I shouldn't have been allowed to watch the Dukes of Hazard. That show sucks. Well, it, talking about the way things are today, the Dukes of Hazard probably would be the show that wouldn't make it on television today. Although, look at that girl. With mm-hmm. da- Think about all the cultural things that came from that show. Though. Daisy Dukes. General Lee. All that so it was very like Enos Cooter. Enos. I'm just naming oh, the character. Oh, do you remember? That Enos had his own show. Yeah, he had a spin-off show. <laughs> you knew that? Yes, I remember that. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm I think so it was glad called, you know uh, that. Carter Cause, Country. Because I, I watched it. Enos, but it was a serious show. Mm-hmm. Like Enos got to leave uh, Hazard County. Hazard County. Yep. And go be a detective. And it was like a serious show. Yeah. And it was always strange to me because how did Enos become a detective? Because <laughs> he was like not smart. No, he, but he was not smart. But Henry. The Barney Five. We should talk about music and records and what was going on in May of 1981 in the world of albums. Chris, go through that first record, man. All right. The first record is called East Side Story. It's by a band called Squeeze. And the song I'm going to play, I have to do it, is Tempted. Church and steeple, the 
Okay, so what I know of this, Paul Carrick sang that song. He sure did. And if you don't know who Paul Carrick is, I'll give you a little refresher, because this guy was everywhere in the 80s. For Smiths fans, like me and Henry, uh-huh. he played on their debut album. He played all the piano. He played on Real Around the Fountain, You've Got Everything Now, and I Don't Owe You Anything. Mm-hmm. He also was in a band before that called Ace. Did you oh, know that? Oh, yes, yes, I read about and that. And Ace had a couple Yacht Rock hits, which totally blew my mind that that was Paul Carrick. He then joined a band after Squeeze called Mike and the Mechanics with uh, the guy from... I never knew he was in that. Mike Rutherford, I think is the guy's name, from Genesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't remember their big hit... The Living Years, right? That was sung by Paul Carrick. Didn't know that, did you? No, I didn't know that. This guy was everywhere. He was singing is, all the kind of schmaltzy shit he, that you don't like. But so, he did sing Tempted. <laughs> 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 so uh, right, yeah, I also it. found out Henry I went deep diving. The guy played with Roxy Music. Did you know that? He was I on did. Two uh, Roxy I did Music read album. that. Yes, I did read so, that. Uh, and he did have a hit, a solo hit too, that I thought was terrible as a kid. So the guy was kind of all over the place. But it's funny that the the most to me that the most well known and the most iconic '80s song for Squeeze was sung by Paul Carrick, who really was only in the band for a minute and was a key one record. He was. His, Attributed uh, as a keyboard player, which he was, he and he was a great keyboard player. I don't know what your feelings are about this particular one, but I was surprised. I think I'd always put Squeeze in a certain hole in my mind, and as I as as one track went to the next one, I realized that they were really trying very hard. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree, and I guess because I, this is the only Squeeze album I owned as a young person, really? I didn't really know that. I always attributed. This to being squeezed. I think I said when we reviewed their last record, Argy Bargy, mm-hmm. to me that record sounded very much like a Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, yes. Elvis Costello wannabe record, which I think the backstory of this record proves that out. But yes. these guys were much more than that. Um, this record is, uh, to me, is all over the place stylistically. That's the that's the would you be. That's a criticism I have of it. But I would call that. See, I'm the I'm the opposite. I would say it's a, it's a good thing. These guys could write a great song yeah. in any different genre. Um, funnily enough, uh, the, so the backstory for this record was, and, and talk about ambition. Yeah. These guys were going to have their four most influential influential artists produce three songs each or four songs each, however many it was going to be, and be a double album. Damn. And it was going to be Paul McCartney, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nick Lowe. Dave Edmonds and Elvis Costello. Yeah. And Paul McCartney never showed up. Dave Edmonds showed up and only did one song, I believe. Nick Lowe never produced any of them, but Elvis Costello produced the rest. And I think it's, it's cool. I don't know if you noticed this, but with all the stylistic mm-hmm. different songs, it almost, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it almost feels like a double album anyway. It's yeah. It's uh, kind of it. It kind of feels it, like it a different played thing. really dense, right? And I didn't expect that. No, and I didn't expect you know if you if you'd put a gun to my head and said which album did Elvis Costello produce, I would have said Argy Bargy because to me that sounds like cleaner, trying to be more, like yeah, trying to be like Elvis. But but there was a lot of big guitar kind of stuff happening on this thing. Well, and there's a lot of like when they do rock, uh, rockabilly-ish sound, mm-hmm. it sounds that way. When they do and do wop, there's even like a kind of a do wop sound. It sounds that way. But I feel like the main songwriters in the band 
did a great job of proving we can write good songs in any kind of style on this do you, record. Do you think, here's my hypothesis, I still think this these guys are just English as fuck. I mean, I just think they're so English that that's why a record like this doesn't really get the attention that it probably deserves to get. Well, over here, you mean? That's what I mean. Yeah, because they got a lot of attention in England. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more... And I've, this is a theory, Henry, I've had about uh, popular music, and it may be, I may yeah. be off, off the deep end. You tell me what you think. I've always thought that England has been a bigger sucker for the um, blue-eyed soul kind of thing because mo- England is mostly white people. Yeah. And America, we invented soul, and black people invented it. Mm-hmm. So when we hear a guy like... Um, the, I always think of that movie, The Commitments. When we see like Irish people trying to do soul right. over there, it plays like, "Oh, you're doing it, you're getting it." Over here, it's like, "Why?" What do they call that? Kitchen sink drama or something like that? I don't know. I feel like for me too, like like Joe Jackson was a perfect example of like a guy that England really connected with because he kind of sounded like he had R and B soul chops, but he was a white dude. Yeah. And over here, it didn't play because we we're like. Well, yeah, he sounds like a white dude. I just feel like they their ambition was so strong that it kind of hurt their the cohesiveness of it in some way to me. Like, like you would you would I know that you would see it as a positive. For me, it just sort of it's like it felt like they were fractured, and and like I didn't really. If everything's good, then nothing's good. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Well, and then to me, I think and 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 whether you think it's good or bad, I, I feel like to squeeze at the time, East Side Story was like their soft bulletin. Like yeah. it was them being. I wrote Sergeant Peppers. Okay, well, it was them being yeah. as experimental as, as they, they could, could possibly be. be. And yeah. I felt like they were like, we just wrote one great song in each of the genres that we love. Deal with that, bitches. Yeah. yeah Whereas yeah. now, it, looking back on it, I, I don't think. I ever thought of it as this hallmark of amazing. I just thought it was a pretty good record, you know. And I kind of feel bad because I always liked the singer in Squeeze, and I kind of feel bad that their one big 80s song is a song Paul Carrick sings. I didn't know this until doing our research that, and it's because in the video it's the uh, the guitarist that does it, but in the second verse, the main singer trades lines with Elvis Costello. <laughs> but um, I never knew Elvis sang on that, so that was kind of cool. So, you know, I guess the other thing, Henry, that I would say that is a criticism about it, though, is I, I don't think it was very smart in a way of trying to produce hits because some of those songs are so niche, mm-hmm. uh, their influences, mm-hmm. that they don't really sound like I, I couldn't see an American radio programmer going, well, I can't put a straight up attempt at a soul song on pop radio. You know, like Tempted seemed like to me the most. Uh, available song to be on pop radio, so I I feel bad that there wasn't another hit. Well, um, it's, on, on it's there. like they're it's like they were the first versions of Fountains of Wayne or something. Like they like they're the world's best bar band or something. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Well, it makes sense also in that you're you're talking about the guys that that were helping them and they emulated would proudly call themselves bar band. Uh, Dave Edmonds was a bar band yeah, aficionado. What do they call it? Pub rock? Pub or? rock. Nick Lowe considered himself a bar band um, type person. So I think they would be proud when you, yeah. of, of hearing you say Real that. Real interesting stuff because it's, you know, like I've always said about this project, is like it forces your hand to listen to things you were not, not otherwise inclined to do. That's right. And I was really surprised at how good the record was. So I, thumbs up for me. Yeah, for me, I'm going to recommend it just because um, – I think you already probably know the single, 
uh, tempted, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with the rest of the record, and not just in an 80s way. Yeah, so I'll have to figure out which of the records I'm going to um, put my you know my red Sharpie around, but um, that's a contender. That's a contender, all right. <laughs> you know? We'll see what happens later in the episode. Stay tuned. Next record we're going to talk about is the second record from a band from L.A. called X. And uh, it's called, uh, the record is called Wild Gift. The song that we're going to play is... uh, White Girl. We, we failed miserably at doing an Exena and John Doe harmony right okay. there. One, two, three, four. White girl. Was that better? You think? Yeah, they always did this thing where he trails off, and well, they kind of they have a trailing off, both of them really okay. kind of thing. Were you in love with their harmony? No. I'll tell Why you, am see, I? This is I'm about to say some shit oh, here no, too. I am. All right. So, I, first thing I want to say is I'm really glad. Manzarek decided not to play on this one, but I see why he did. Kind of the, that's the problem. I hate that I'm going to do this. It hurt. <laughs> Stop making that face at me. This is a band that I want to like. Me too. And so the the problem with it's a band I feel like I should like too. Right. The idea of listening to X is doesn't always match the reality of listening to the band. <laughs> this is one of the For bands me. with my vinyl collection where when it, I want it on the wall. I want the album in my yeah. collection in case Henry passes by and goes, he's got X albums, but I doubt my fingers are ever going to stop on it. <laughs> because the cover of Los Angeles is great. Well, and just having X, like you should be an X Like fan. as a human being, you're supposed to... They are punk rock. All right, right? I'm going to go one step further into the, into the gaping maw of... We have and obliterating myself. <laughs> here's the big. Here's my big conceit with X, and what? maybe it's because it's um, informed by what happened later on. Mm-hmm. I feel like X, and, and it's more specifically John Doe, uh-huh. is is basically germinating the seeds of alt country mm-hmm. right now. In the, even on with this, this album. record, yeah. and what is happening is he is outgrowing being in this punk band from L.A., 
which the main identity of that punk band is singing harmonies with a girl that can't sing because that's super punk. It's so weird that you – And I, I feel you like – You didn't read my notes here, right? No. That's I feel weird. like she's kind of ruining the record, but I get why she was there because she was really the whole show because she represented anybody can do this shit. That's what punk is. I found myself, Henry, gravitating to the songs where he sang and she just okay. kind of stayed my, out of I the took, way. I got mad at myself so much on this one that I listened to it two times. The first pass, I was mad at myself because obviously I don't get it. And I was like, well, why are you doing a music show? You click the million people can't be wrong. You have to, you're supposed to like John. I, I think you would like Henry. I think you, this, this is me talking to myself. Henry, I think you would like John Doe. Why? What's your problem with John Doe? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so at, the problem was, it's like, is it objectively good? I can say, yes, it is objectively good as an observer. Do I care about it? Hmm, not really. Like after three songs, I'm like, okay, I, I get it. You know, the, the, the harmonies really resonate for some. That's the first pass. Okay, the second pass I took, I'm liking it a little bit more. But I really think it's situational dependent as to whether you're going to like listening to it or for me. I, I even took it to a deeper level, Henry. I was trying to listen to it a second and third time and trying to imagine it without her. And I'm like sitting here going, this band mm -hmm. is basically, and I, and I could be totally wrong here, but they're kind of in, he's kind of creating Dwight Yoakam. Mm -hmm. He's kind of creating Wilco. He's kind of like starting the germs that become where the replacements ended up going. And I know a lot of that's informed by like later in the 80s, my first encounter with John Doe as a kid was he was in Great Balls of Fire playing a 50s rocker guy right? Uh, with Jerry Lee Lewis. But mm -hmm. I think he actually loved all that shit. I think he was in it more to be like the Stray Cats than he was in it to be in this super crazy punk band. And I, I I found myself wondering and getting distracted listening to the record going, I wonder if he's going when he's doing these vocals going, why is she doing this? <laughs> well, I've always yeah. had this thing about I don't really like L.A. punk mm -hmm. in, in, in just to begin with. But I don't – I've never – Henry, I don't really think of X as a punk band. I think of X as a an, an alt-country band mm -hmm. that just tended to play a little more rough and ready than normal and had this girl that kind of – Sings off key or whatever, whenever X, she feels X like. Scene it. was just kind of annoying. In, in yes, yes, but in a way that I know I understand was part of the time. So what I would say about the record is, I think it's worth a listen if you're if you are an alt country fan who's into the uh, roots of it and you've never really thought that a lot of it came from punk because but, there's a lot of it in in here. But here's what the record feels like: it has amazingly good lyrics for a punk band. Which again, I don't think he thought he was in a punk band. And, but, I, and I'll but, tell you something else. The guitar player is really good. But I think w what this makes you think of is they're kicking at the boxes of what of, of the punk. They're kicking at the punk box they were in. Right. And we could do a whole show on punk because, in my opinion, punk was a label that put boundaries around people, which was the exact opposite of what punk was supposed to mean. Punk meant you could do any fucking thing you wanted to do. But we kind of created a label mm -hmm. with punk, which is like. But we're listening to it from you know from the benefit of years in 2019 right. at at other musics that has been influenced hardcore by things like this, and we don't. And so we're looking back on this like like it's back in the box, right? 
And I don't want to say that this record is not worth a listen. I'm not going to For recommend it. For historical value, it is. It's definitely worth it. I would also say as a tip, pro tip here, if you're going to go back and listen to it, find the remastered version. Totally sounded better. I, I yeah. started with the original version that I found, and I was like, ah. Tinny. Yeah, it was just tinny and kind of weak, and then it got punched up on the... Um, and I would recommend, rather than putting it in, in your car, put it in your headphones. Mm-hmm. Something about that stereo separation helps. Right. So, um, the, the drums are good. The guitars are mic'd correctly. There, but there's something about that music that delivered straight to your eardrums does help some. So. Right. Are you going to recommend this one, Henry? Uh, it's not going to go on my recommend list. I think if you're going to listen to X, you probably should listen to um, Los Angeles or maybe some later stuff. Okay. Uh, the next record that we're going to listen to is called Red. And it's by a band called Black Uhura. And the song we're going to listen to is called Spongy Reggae. I can't critique reggae well. I suck at it. Like, because I started listening, how many bad reggae songs have I ever heard in my life? They're usually by white people, <laughs> you know? It's, it's kind of funny to me because I, I think my where I was going to go with this record is I didn't want to listen to it. Really? This is the first one I didn't want to listen to because I, I had the exact, almost same feeling. How am I going to break down a reggae record? I don't, I'm not sure I know what I like or don't like about reggae. And I'm pretty much got the uh, whole, I know Bob Marley and I like that, mm-hmm. but what else I've heard the whalers and I've heard like Peter Tosh, Peter Tosh. And, um, and then I listened to this and I, I forgot that I had listened to this in the nineties. Like me and you went through a small reggae period. I think a band called burning spear came mm-hmm. to town or something. I love this record, Henry. And I, the, I think the reason I loved it was it didn't sound like Bob Marley to me. It was kind of, did you find it to be kind of slick? Yes, the drum. Yeah. Okay, so the drumming is more like this dancey, almost Americanized mm-hmm. kind of. Um, but not too much. But a little bit. A little, so that it's yeah. not this laid back like Jamaican, or I don't want to get into critiquing, but like, yeah. I was like, oh, this is more like some upbeat shit. And then I found out, and I don't know, I, again, I'm going to, I'm, I'm saying I like this record, but when I did my research, None of the three members of the band at this time did any of the music. Really? 
it was all done by the producer and the um, uh, some session guys that they brought in. Now, all the guys that did it were guys that had helped Black Yuhura all along, and they that was not the big thing of Black Yuhura. The big thing was they would write the tunes like on a guitar uh-huh. and just bring it to the producer guys, and they didn't play bass drums. This and all is that the stuff. Sly and Robbie guys. Sly and Robbie, yes, thank you. Who were their producers for their biggest parts of their album? I also didn't know that the the, the girl in the out in Black Yuhura at the time was from South Carolina. She wasn't Jamaican. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So that was kind of cool too. But man, I really like this record, and I don't know if I want to give. I don't know if I'm supposed to give credit to Sly and Robbie or to the. Uh, folks in Black Yuhura proper. I know the lineup changed a lot from album to album, mm-hmm. so maybe that wasn't as important. But whoever made this record, thank you. I think it's a great record. <laughs> Is I it, really enjoyed it. I think, uh, and I don't, I don't know for sure, but it sounded like it was sort of brought into the modern times, I guess, without sounding cheesy or corny. Like they didn't go UB40 on it. Right, you know. it's almost like they were updating. Okay, Marley's already hit and done, and yeah. that was the '70s, and this is like the early '80s uh, reggae. I think they were big in the UK, right? Like that was if you were a club kid in the '80s, you probably were with it. Reggae with in those general guys. was big in the early '80s in England, which is why you got bands like UB40, right? Like. Everybody, the like madness and Scott, all that was a reaction to reggae. They all loved reggae. Yeah. Even the the English beat, the band we love, English beat, the beat, were kind of influenced by that, obviously. But every song on this is eminently danceable. But this right? sounds like its own thing. Like yeah. I think now I can hear uh, Black Yahoo and go, oh, I know what they sound like. I put this on, and <laughs> this sounds terrible when I when I say it. And this is not a bad thing. Um, I put the record on in my shed as I was working. And uh, it was over before I wanted it to be over. Yeah. Yes. And maybe that's the the hallmark of what a good re- reggae album is. You know? Thumbs yeah. up for me. I enjoyed it. Hell yeah, definitely thumbs up for me. It's definitely, uh, to me, what the sound of early 80s reggae should sound like. So it's 80s by definition. So definitely check it out. Henry, what's our... Oh, boy. Henry, what's our next record? I mean, I didn't know if you were going to let me do this. <laughs> I mean, how could I do anything else? <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, Tom Petty, so we're, we're going to consider Hard Promises by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, we're going to play a, a beautiful song on it. It's called Night Watchman. Are you okay with playing that? I picked it just because that's my favorite song on the record, but this is yeah. your territory. I mean, I'm like stepping in your turf. Do you uh, want to play Night Watchman? I like it because it's a little-known good song. Like, everybody knows Insider and all that. So let's, let's play this one for the people. All right, here it is.
course, the world knows and loves Tom Petty. What the hell are you going to say about a Tom Petty album? But it's like, how do you follow up Damn the Torpedoes, right? How right. Do you, how do you, oh, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, and you were more of the Tom Petty historian than me. Was was Damn the Torpedoes... It was not his debut, was it? No, uh-uh. That was like, like his third. Okay. I feel like the thing about Tom Petty to me is... And I, and I, I want to say that I didn't do a lot of research for this record because I knew it was Henry's jam. Yeah, um, it's all right. Tom Petty to me felt like he came out fully formed. Mm. Like Tom Petty has always sounded like... And, it, and, and he waited for everybody else to get with him right. Well, and the right? weird thing is, the weird thing <laughs> is, I had trouble reviewing this record as an 80s record because he makes timeless... I mean, it, really, do you want to know what rock music sounds like? The way everyone can relate to? Not hard rock, not soft rock. Not, right. You want to know what good fucking rock music sounds like? Yeah. I mean, Hard like Promises a, is great. It's a, so is Damn the Torpedoes. Right. So is every other fucking right. Tom Petty record. It's, I mean, a, right, it's like a good chair, you know? This chair feels good. That one does too. And I was sitting there listening yeah. to it, going, "If you if you played me Hard Promises next to any five Heartbreaker records, mm-hmm. I can't tell you the order that they came in or what year they came out in because they all sound timeless to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a big super fan, so I can't go. Oh, this one came out in '78. This one came out in '81. They just all sound great. Yeah, D- uh, Damn the Torpedoes came out in '79. Just missed missed our window to listen to, right? But this one doesn't sound that much different, and I'm not slagging. That's that's the thing. That's just, the criticism I would give it is that the songs like they brought Jimmy Iovine again. You're like, okay, you killed it with this one. Let's do the next one. And although the songs were good, I don't know that the production, the record, it feels like it's growing outside of the what production he could give it to me. It's like. I think, by the way, folks, I think Henry's nitpicking here. I am, but it's it's like it's grown past the the production that D, that damn the torpedoes got and was morphing to to something else. And I think that's the major hang. It's got the waiting on it. It's like the classic song. How can you go wrong? I mean, I mean, it's beautiful. It's got Insider on it, one of the most beautiful songs in the world. But there's a number of songs that did, I think, suffer the 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 ones that weren't hits, right? they kind of suffered as a result of that in some ways they were going to do that superstar pricing on this thing along with gaucho by steely dan and the olivia newton john record they'd done it with that too with the with xanadu right remember that yes and uh petty didn't had had just like won some sort of big legal case with damn the torpedoes and said, "Yep, you're not going to sell it for eight ninety eight. No records worth eight ninety eight. Right? They, and they caved, you know. But that that's the big thing that people remember about Hard Promises. I don't know that people. Uh, I think it's kind of a little bit overlooked in some way. I would say it is. I mean, of course, the waiting's on there, so mm-hmm. it's not that overlooked. But to me, to me again, it, it's this timeless rock music that there's nothing wrong with it at all. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's." I guess the reason I like Night Watchman so much is because I think the band wrote that one. Um, and it kind of has a different feel. And it's so shocking to me that they do it, and it's fine. <laughs> it's like, it's fine. They can do that if they wanted to. But now back to the timeless rock and roll. Um, it's just so effortlessly good. And I think of it separately from you. I'm saying all this, but not saying it in like people do consider Tom Petty with Bob Dylan. Like yeah. they should, but I don't think. Hard, I think he was right when Hard Promises came out, 
I don't know that Tom Petty records were worth eight ninety nine when this record came out to the public. Yeah, I don't know. Because I don't think he was on that level at that point. And I don't know that until he went and did the solo record later in the late 80s, one of those people that we would say, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, you know, the 80s Prince. I think he kind of snuck in there at the end of the 80s, even though I think the early 80s are the better record. Well, he didn't. I mean, his most successful album was in the 90s, early 90s. Right, like right? 91, 92. Was, was Full Moon Fever. Full Moon Fever, right. Right, that's when he really And that it. wasn't with the Heartbreakers, if I'm... And I would say it's not his best work. I would totally agree. That's what I was trying to get at. I don't think he became an icon until yeah. then, but the better records are the early 80s records. Yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. But, but I don't think he was being like humble when he said the record's not worth anything. I think he was actually like, I need to sell a bunch of fucking records. We were bankrupt assholes right and why are you going to price this thing out of the i need to sell some records (laughs) (laughs) but either way this is a great record um of course i'm gonna it's one of those where you're like when we're doing this show it's like of course i think we're gonna recommend it right yeah yeah but i mean that's a given i think we should just go ahead and say we're not gonna recommend either one of us this album because i mean I mean, you should listen to his whole fucking thing, dude. <laughs> well, and, and just just to give you a little right. backstory, Henry was a Tom. Henry was such a Tom Petty fan. Oh God! It made me not want to listen to Tom Petty yeah. back in the day because I was like, yeah. Jesus Christ, dude. Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to any of our other podcasts or whatever, we did one when Tom Petty died, and I was in tears, and it was a mess. It was. It was. It was a hard day. <laughs> anyway, uh, great album. You should listen to it. Yep. All right, and this gets us to our final record of the episode, Henry, and that it is called Computer. World, and it's by a band called Craftwork, and this song is called Numbers. this episode it feels right it does it feels because, right because probably because we listened to this one <laughs> we listened to a lot of crap work this week <laughs> and you know this of of all of um of all the records that we've listened to thus far i loved this one the most wow okay um, i didn't I, expect I really that. think the reason why is because i thought it, i think it did a great job of nailing some of this technological disconnected weirdness that is happening now in you know in our life and so it became weirdly relevant to me like and it also reminded me although they didn't mean it to be this it reminded me of when we were kids and we were listening to the speaking spell right it did it had all the sounds and i wonder if they predated those sounds and those sounds (laughs) were because of them or if it was vice versa yeah but yeah like they they, i think they did it, it it did it had for me it was nostalgic Right. 
But but the me- the original meaning remained. But do you know how right. like like underground stuff like even now you see like something cool underground and then and then like a year later you'll see an, a mainstream television commercial and you'll yes. hear those sounds and you're like, I felt that way with Kraftwerk. Like by by '84 you were hearing everything going, bloop bloop bloop, bing. You know like <laughs> yeah. you know like everything was doing that kind of shit. It felt like a nice warm blanket to me, like going back to my youth listening to this record. Yeah. My only criticism of it, Henry, because I liked it a lot too, was I'm not sure. I'm not sure Kraftwerk meant this as an album. I think they literally really? were trying to make to see if they could make songs with machine noises completely, and they weren't like even the vocals. They put something on the vocal to make it sound like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the vocoder. Like a vocoder, yeah. or I, I don't even know if they had. Did they have vocoders? I, I read that they did. Okay. They had one made for. But it, and it seemed like even the drum beats, like they put they they were actual machine noises, like they were. And I almost felt like they worked so hard on doing that and making something. I think they looked up at the end and were like, "Oh shit, did we make an okay album? I don't know. <laughs> did we? I don't know. Fuck it. Did we work so hard really? on? Let's do it. Because to me, like I love. Numbers, I love that song, and, and I, I should mention that like it's been sampled, mm-hmm. and uh, you know like African Bombada sampled it. Like it, it was stuff that was heard secondhand on the dance floors of the '80s all over the place. But I don't even know if that's a song. I'm not even sure Numbers is a song. Really, I felt that way about a couple of these songs. I was like, this is cool and it's a neat experiment, but is this a song? Is it really? I always felt it as a song. Really? Because some of their lyrics, too, yeah. are just like... But it hit, me at right the, it hit me at just the right time because I was running to it. And um, and I just probably disengaged from the internet and had a lot of thoughts in my head about this about our culture and what we're doing right now. And that just dovetailed so well. It's like it, it was prophetic in a strange way. Well, I've yeah. always I've always had a, a affinity for um, craft work because I don't know if it's because they're German or if they do it on purpose. Do you like German art? Is Can German? Yeah, Can is German. Um, what is it with me and German? I don't know. Music I love Can a lot more than Kraftwerk. But yeah, yeah. Uh, my favorite part about Kraftwerk is some of their lyrics. Like you'll be listening to them and you'll be like, "Is this because they don't trans? They don't know the translation very well, or are they doing this on purpose?" <laughs> but like they like the, my favorite Kraftwerk album is this one called Tour de France. Uh-huh. Have you ever heard? You haven't heard that one? Um, I'm, I'm sure. I've it's heard all it. about the Tour de France of bike racing. But the, the lyrics are just like, just the bicycle is repaired quickly. The Peloton is regrouped. And in the back, two guys are going, Tour de France, Tour de France. <laughs> like, they're so on the nose. They don't have any subtlety at all. Like, did you notice that even on this one? Like, the song but Numbers I, is just like, Numbers. <laughs> yeah, but that's what, that's, but what I got, this is the, that's the disconnect part. I'm like, and then there's a song called Computer Love, and I'm like, the main lyric is just, Computer Love. That happens. I know, me. but I, you know, what like, I love is that they're, they're so on the nose with everything. They don't, it, and it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's like, where Dieter and Sprockets came from. I guess. You know? it, it's like, maybe I, I like it the same way the kids like Minecraft or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, I did want to bring up one other point when I was listening to it that I thought about. And I know a lot of uh, black artists sampled this and stuff, so they probably answered my question. But I wonder if at the time, if you were making dance music, you know, in New York City, and you're, mm-hmm. you're a black person making you know, dance music, and then someone puts this on. I wondered, I, it just to me, if you're like, that is the whitest music I've ever 
heard. Why do people like this? Because <laughs> it does. It does seem like it's really like white. Sometimes. I didn't, why did I not get sprockets when we dance? I didn't. It didn't even occur to me that to that think was, about it. Like, oh, I think that's totally a parody of crap. I know it is, but like when I was listening to Computer World, I didn't think of that. No, oh, I, I always do when I hear crap. I can't help it. I'm just like, I, I, it wasn't even in my head. I don't know why, <laughs> but now it makes all the sense in the world. Okay, so that we're both going to recommend yeah, that one, though. Okay. Recommend. And so let's see what Megan's got to say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe she's going to set us straight on one of these, and then we'll uh, do our pick. Okay. everyone, it's Megan here with my pick for the month of May 1981. There's a couple records this month actually that are by two of my favorite artists ever, which is great because that means awesome music to listen to again for the purposes of the episode. But it's also difficult because I have to choose between like, it's almost like choosing between like two children. How am I supposed to do that? But you know what? I'm making an executive decision and I am picking two records for this month. Yep. Um, I'm going to go with Hard Promises by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and then also uh, Computer World by Kraftwerk, which are very different artists, so it's kind of funny to put them next to each other and listen to them back to back. Computer World is great. It's not my favorite Kraftwerk album, which I feel like I always say that about like every artist we discuss, um, but it's still so fucking rad. I especially think that the themes about, you know, the rise of technology, um, more so about computers then, which, I mean, it's still computers now, but I, I think more like AI, but basically just technology in our everyday lives. And it makes it almost more relevant now than when it came out, which obviously was May 1981. Um, this was their eighth album, too, which is just crazy. They just released such consistently good like work over the years, and not a lot of bands can do that. And it just shows how influential they were, even today with the huge rise of EDM, which I definitely prefer like Kraftwerk over the EDM of today. I'm not really into like all of the bass drops, and I feel like a lot of it's just kind of fluff. So Kraftwerk, great album, definitely recommend it. Um, the next album that I'm going to talk about is Hard Promises. And again, it's not my favorite Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record, but it's Tom Petty. And I honestly don't really dislike anything that he put out uh, during his whole career, even his solo stuff. Um, I feel like I talk about it a lot, especially with my friends, but I got to see Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in July 2017 at DTE in Clarkston, Michigan. Um, it used to be called Pine Knob, so I think most people, especially Michiganders, we still think of it as Pine Knob. I definitely refer to it that way a lot. It was such a great show, especially for me. Um, just a really cool experience because I grew up on Tom Petty. Like Tom Petty and another artist, I guess it'd probably be like Bruce Springsteen, are almost kind of religions where I come from um, in the Midwest. Of course, unfortunately, Tom Petty passed away a couple months later in October, and that made it all the more meaningful that I got to go see him, and it was awesome. So I think it was their 40th anniversary. It was a great show, and I'll always carry it with me. Speaking of shows, actually, I'm going to go see Adam Ant this Friday in Royal Oak. And I'm excited for it, but I'm also keeping my expectations kind of low. Like, 
I, I kind of did the same thing when I went to go see Peter Murphy. Like, I love Peter Murphy, but I had heard kind of mixed things about his live stuff. And I've kind of heard the same sort of thing with Adam Ant. But I like him enough where I think it's, you know, a cool experience to go. And he's touring. He doesn't really tour that often, especially around here. So I'm excited. Um, we actually did cover Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants in our July 1980 episode. That's when he still had his ants, like the, the backing band. I think they ended up going to Bow Wow Wow via Malcolm McLaren, the, the Svengali, of course, who helped form the Sex Pistols. I don't think it really worked out for anybody, though, in the long run, but Adam Ant's still still going. Um, and I think, actually, this tour is focused on Friend or Foe, which is one of my favorite albums by him. So I think it should be pretty cool. I'll let you guys know how it is and if it's worth checking out if he comes around where you live. Lastly, I guess, just follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at 80s Exposed. That's 80s, E-X-P-O-S-E-D. Instagram at 80s374. And then you can also find us on Facebook at 80s Music Exposed. And we do have a Patreon. Um, I haven't really checked it like recently, so I don't know if we actually have any patrons or not. But if you like the show, it'd be awesome uh, to have you support it. And if you don't feel like supporting uh, monetarily, just give us like a review on iTunes or Spotify or rate us. We would love to hear from you. So feel free to hit us up. You can follow me too at Bastards of Young 92 on Instagram. And then I'm Megan Maddox on Facebook, and that's M A D T O X. Anyway, thank you for listening. Bye. All right, Henry. So now I'm dying to hear what your pick is because this is tough for me because I recommended four records this time. Uh, uh, of these, of the four, of the five. And I know what you're doing here again. You said we can't recommend Tom. I didn't realize when you snuck that in because you don't want to be known as the guy that didn't recommend a Tom Petty record. Oh, yeah. I don't really know. You don't want to betray right. the memory of Tom Petty. Uh, you're right. I'm going to say Tom Petty has to be on the table. Um, I'm if go- you don't recommend this Tom Petty record, <laughs> you're, uh, you are betraying he's the cr- ghost. He's crying in heaven. <laughs> Imagine Tom Petty with one single tear, like the the like the Indian guy, and then when he burned up all this down. <laughs> the, 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 what was that commercial? What, what the what the people don't know, and I'll say it like um, our social media Megan has a Tom Petty tattoo. <laughs> yeah, so you're gonna let so down I'm the entire making, community. I'm making I'm making Megan's Tom Petty tattoo cry. Yeah, it's gonna win. but it's gonna be craft work. Uh, and the reason why is just because uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you live in the year 2019 and you have concerns about the way uh, things have gone with computers and the way our culture has adapted to them, given a, this um, this record, a listen, will um, be sort of cathartic for you. So I, I recommend Computer World by Craftwork. All right. And I am going to, even though Hard Promises is on the table... And I like, I, I am going to recommend this above that record. I'm going to recommend Red by Black Uhura. I think it, and the reason Hard Promises didn't get my recommend is I don't think it sounds like the 80s specifically. It sounds like just. That's a, a criteria for you, right? For me, I, like I feel like 
if people are listening to this, they're like, I want to hear what I want to hear something from the eighties that I'd forgotten about that might bring me back to that time that I didn't know would do it. Cause for me, when we started the show and I think we may have talked about this, I get so sick. I'm a big eighties fan. Mm -hmm. I get so sick of trying to find an eighties radio station that doesn't play the same 10 fucking songs. I think I approach it from a perspective that I want to show people that the eighties was not just one thing and that there was a lot of good art to be had in that period of time. And sometimes it's in places where you, where you're not going to look. Well, I think we're both going at it in two different ways, but they get in the same place. But so to me, the black Yahoo record was a record that I think sounds like eighties reggae. It's a really good record. Um, and I think if you're a big eighties aficionado and you've only got time for one of these five records for me, it's red by black Yahoo. Um, but man, this turned out to be a much better month. Than I thought going in, so I'm going to try to adjust my attitude going forward. <laughs> a better attitude. We I'm going to try to have a better attitude. We've got a little bit of time left. I, I really want uh, want to hear about your trip to Paisley Park. I mean, oh yeah, can you? Um, what, yeah, what, so I went last week. What was your favorite part of it? Uh, my favorite part of Paisley Park. So my favorite part is actually how weird it was getting there and on the outside mm -hmm. and. Uh, we we took an Uber out there because it's about twenty miles outside of Minneapolis. Uh -huh. It's just sitting on a like highway, like a, a normal new highway that has like shopping centers on them and you know targets. So you're not driving through the woods, right? No, you're like you know you're going down one of those roads. It's got a stoplight every one of those highways. It's got like a stoplight every mile and a half. That's got a Target center or uh -huh. a, a Lowe's or a uh -huh. Home Depot or whatever, and then. You think you're at one of those at a stoplight. You think you're sitting there and you're looking at it like, oh, that must be like a UPS service center because it's this big blocky so, warehousey looking building. And that's fucking Paisley so Park. So I've seen pictures of it. There's no surrounding woods around it. It's no, it's like, in the middle of like a field and it's got like a parking lot, like a industrial building. Really? And uh, you turn off the highway and you just go right around the corner and there's a little guard gate and a little sign that says Paisley Park. In like black script, not like you know. I'm expecting like, oh, you'll know this shit. It's gonna be painted like a rainbow. But then, huh. like, even my Uber driver and who got, who took us out there, and the guy that picked us up, were both like Minnesota lifers, and they were both like, oh shit, this is it. Like, I pass this every day. I didn't know this. I thought this was like a Lowe's or something. Yeah, like, so that was kind of weird to me. When you go inside, Henry, they take your phone away from you immediately. Huh. Um, put it in one of these little secure. Oh, bags. like they do at the comedians. That's right. That's yeah. right. Like uh, at shows now, like people that don't want flash. Um, yeah, yeah. They don't want you to record this. So shit. you can't take any pictures or anything. But my uh, favorite part was, I, and I did this at Graceland too. I think there's something weird to me about the. It's not the celebrity. It's just like being where a person, like like even if even even if you died, mm -hmm. like to me, the fascinating part would be like, well, Henry used to sit in that stool all the time. Right. And so there was a place where they showed us this like uh, little room off the lobby, which was like the break room. Cause it was a working studio before mm -hmm. he died. Was it, was it like for Mica all over the place? Like a, like yeah, it was like, it, it was like, imagine what your office break room looked like. And it looked like that. And it had yeah. a little tiny couch, a shitty little couch and a TV. And, that's where he would sit every day and watch like ESPN and eat his lunch in the break room. In the break room, and the so, break room was open to the um, main atrium. And the tour guide said a lot of people that were there to visit or to record or whatever would always be like, "He's just sitting right behind the glass eating." And they'd be like, "Where's Prince?" Like it, it kind of like 
reminded me of the way Paisley Park is. It's hidden in plain sight. And he was hidden in plain sight. Because people imagine when you walk in there, it's like little Richard walking around like Prince is just going to pop out in a big purple jumpsuit and go like, woo! You know, like... <laughs> Another guy was just sitting on the couch watching TV some eating dude, a ham sandwich. Some dude in a sweatshirt. Yeah, just, just like sitting, sitting there watching with TV. With a hoodie or something. The other thing that fascinated me about the whole experience is if you're expecting what a normal, rich, celebrity, awesome life person would be doing, there's not any of that at Paisley Park. So, you it's know, a working studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, or was? It, like, I, are they doing sessions there anymore? No. Okay. Uh, soundstage where they did movies and stuff, uh-huh. and a club, even built a club. But it's like a workaholic musician's playground. He lived there, okay. but there's no swimming pool. Um, we weren't allowed to see the living quarters, but they said they weren't anything special. What was special was it, like all the work stuff. He worked all the time. But I think if you'd ask him, Henry, he kind of reminds me of one of those people where if you'd ask him, he'd be like, this is paradise. Like I got four studios, I got a dance studio, I got a club, I got a sound stage. What do you mean? Where's the pool? No movie room or any of that stuff. I mean any of that shit, you know? Because he's like, was there a bar for the? There was a bar. So he built like his own little club off the back, and he would sometimes come down and perform. But they would open it up. But I mean, like, okay, so we know we know that REM recorded out of time there. Studio A. They show you Studio A. And so did did they were there places to like grab something to eat? Yeah, so he had a on there was a chef on staff there and Uh there's there was a kitchen area, but it was tied to the club. Okay. But they said he ate dinner in there at night when you know Alone? Most of the time alone, yeah. And there was a spiral staircase from the second floor that came down to the club. That was where his personal Did his wife live there? Yes. She lived there too. Yep. The whole second floor was the personal. Was it court. as big? So, so there was two floors. You only visited the first floor that had all the studios on it. Well, there's two buildings right. connected. There were like two square buildings connected at one corner. The little square building, the whole first floor was four studios, a dance studio, the offices, which his office, they show you his office, mm-hmm. the atrium. Um, and then the upstairs were the living quarters. The second building, which is huge and like seven stories tall, was a sound stage. Oh, okay. you could park an airplane in there. I see. And then a club attached to it, but that was it. That's the that's the that's Paisley Park. He had rooms already set up for his fa- five favorite albums um, before he died, like museum pieces, because people were coming and already touring and stuff. So you saw his costumes and his guitars, and there was videos playing. He was tiny, Henry. That was the other thing that was amazing to me. Um, His costumes were so absurdly small that you were just like, "Mm, really? How tall do you think he was? Well, the tour guide said no one was ever allowed to ask or say like that, but Uh she would have guessed 5'2", 115 pounds. Golly. That's Um, like a midget. But again, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring this up about like my fascination with midget people. Yeah, midget. I can't say the word midget. Wow. I think I just didn't even hear you say that. Um, was they had his gas card? I mean, his driver's license. I'm sorry, they had his driver's license um, under glass, which I thought was that kind of stuff is the stuff that I like. Um, so that's yeah. just like that's just like Graceland. I know, but it's hilarious to see Prince had a driver's license for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> that was still valid. Like he has a valid driver's license. <laughs> a little symbol on it. Like, <laughs> hey, Mister Symbol. That would be hilarious, but you know what's even better? The photo. I can't even explain the photo, but the photo looks like what 
you would imagine them doing a parody of it. Was he trying to like glamour? Yeah, he was just doing like a pose face, like, (laughs) you know, just like, I mean, I'm buying these prints, right? So yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was really weird. I don't know. I wonder if because the family is running it, if it's kind of set up a little weirder than it would be if some a professional was running it. Like um, they like like there are there things that the gift shop was just kind of eh, which you would think that would be the main. Yeah, that's how you make money, right? Um, and everybody wants to take home a little something, but um, it wasn't that great. Yeah, I don't know if you remember when we went to Sun Sun Studio. Yes, which is like no bigger than a garage basically like, like this the size of this room three quarters of it is gift shop it's just <laughs> every fucking thing you could ever want with the name son so, uh, is yeah. there um then he, he could maybe get some help from those folks but so uh, anyway i enjoyed it was worth going so and we reviewed dirty mind um just a few months ago i mean podcast months ago right right um and you saw where they recorded dirty mind or he recorded it right dirty mind actually was pre paisley park oh okay um he didn't Bill Paisley Park till after Purple Rain, so because he was rich, because yeah, he made a ton of money off that. So yeah, okay. um, everything after Purple Rain was recorded there, but the guitar that he used on Dirty Mind was in the Dirty Mind room. Was everything purple? No, uh, it was a lot of it was more like. So look at look at the album cover for Around the World in a Day. Okay, that's what everything looked like like cloud like blue and white and rainbows and. That kind of thing going on. A lot less purple than I thought was going to be happening. Oh, okay. Um, but there was a lot more of that Paisley, which I think there is a kind of a Paisley theme going on on the cover of that album, too. It but more of a rainbowy kind of thing. Looks like, like Sergeant Pepper's. And by the way, I had a great a time in video. Minneapolis as well. I cannot say enough about a rapid transit system really that was planned right so that every fucking thing you want to go to in Minneapolis, there's a stop. And you could figure out how to use it. Right? There's only two lines. Only oh, the two lines, and every every place you want to go is on one of the two lines. Brilliant! Congratulations, yeah. Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, Paul. we wanted to go to uh, the First Avenue Club, right? Yep. And uh, it's on a stop. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for telling us about Paisley. Sure, Park, sure, Chris. sure. Um, I could go on about that way too long. Too bad you couldn't get any pictures or anything like that. Yep. 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 I know it was a bummer, and so that's another another episode of Eighties Music Exposed. And uh, we appreciate you listening. Many thanks to our show producer Greg Levin. If you like the way that we sound, you can talk to him about it at Urban Dweller U R B N D W E L L R on Instagram or NBC Greg on Twitter. We're thankful to have him on our team. Many thanks to uh, Megan Maddox, our social media maven. So if you want to start a social media argument with us. We gave you our Twitter handles at the beginning, so That's you right. could you could hit us up. But um, you also can argue with her because she does most of our social media stuff, and she would love to hear from you. And tell well. her about the tears of Tom Petty. The tears of Tom Petty. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Chris. Guess what? What's that? I made you a mixtape. <laughs> <laughs>